This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio. Welcome to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Ann Greenhall, Deputy Executive Director of the Ann and John McNulty Leadership Program here at Wharton on the campus of the University of Pennsylvania. And I am so delighted to be here in studio and have the opportunity to interview our next guest. And I am flying solo today because my dear colleagues and friends, Jeff Klein and Mike Useem, are off. But you and I, you listeners and I, are in for a treat because I have the pleasure of speaking with Wayne Baker, Dr. Wayne Baker, who has just written a new book called All You Have to Do is Ask. So, Wayne, please let me welcome you to the show. Well, thank you, Anne. I'm delighted to be here. I'm really delighted to have this chance to speak with you, and I have to confess, um, I'm actually especially happy to have a chance to speak with you alone because that means I get you all to myself (laughs) (laughs) and get to ask all the questions. Uh, First, I just have to do uh, a shout-out for your new book. It's uh, so so well-received and well-reviewed. In fact, if I may, one of our uh, colleagues here, Adam Grant, wrote a description, and I just have to share it with our listeners. Over the past 15 years, Wayne Baker has taught me one of the most important lessons of my career. The biggest barrier to generosity is not that others are unwilling to give, but that we're afraid to ask. In a book that's simultaneously engaging, evidence-based, and practical, he shows how we can become more skilled at making requests and more comfortable with receiving help. Wayne is one of the world's foremost experts on building and strengthening connections, and his advice will put you in a better position to achieve your goals and build stronger relationships along the way. Adam Grant, author of Originals and Give and Take. So, Wayne, uh, let me just start with a fundamental question. Why is it that people are afraid to ask? There are a number of reasons why people are afraid to ask, and it's uh, it's very common. Uh, So uh, a a frequent objection or barrier is that we're worried or we are concerned that if we ask, particularly in the workplace, uh, that people will think we're incompetent, that we can't Mm -hmm. do our jobs, that we're weak or we're ignorant. Um, But, you know, the research shows, and some of this research was done by a team from Wharton at Harvard, uh, it shows that as long as you make a thoughtful, intentional request, people will think you are more competent, not less. But that's one of the big reasons, that people fear that they'll appear to be incompetent. I say as long as you have a clear goal of what you're trying to accomplish, you know the resource that you need, you've formulated it as an effective request, um, you know that people will think you're more competent for having, having made that request. I'd say another very common one is that we underestimate other people's willingness and ability to help. Hmm. You know, we think that if we ask, people won't help or they don't have the right networks or the right resources. But I've just seen time and time again over the years that if you ask, incredible things will happen. Very good. Let me uh, let me explore this question of appearing incompetent. Uh, have you found or have your colleagues found any evidence of a gender component in this, that there's a fear of, of appearing even weaker 
by asking? Well, it's a very interesting question. Um, We developed an assessment for the book. We also have an online version of it. And we've had a couple of thousand people who have taken that assessment, and we have compared uh, men and women. Mm -hmm. And surprisingly, there are very few differences Mm -hmm. that, on average, both men and women are very, very likely to give, but much less likely to ask for what they need. Now, that said, I have worked with some uh, women executive groups, and I found that women in large companies, you know, when they're at the executive level, I think there really is a big reluctance to ask, uh, a big concern that, you know, I've gotten this far. If I make a request, people will think that, you know, I don't deserve to be here or I'm an imposter for being here. Mm-hmm. And whenever I've worked with groups like that, before I can respond, people will say, and I just realized, you know, I never really ask, but I give all the time and I'm starting to feel burned out. And the cure to burnout um, is to ask for what you need and to balance the scales. Oh, so good. All right. So so this is a twofold equation. On the one hand, we have individuals who are afraid to ask. And on the other hand, um, others who we misperceive, we don't realize that they are as willing to give as, in fact, they are. So... Tell us, what is the benefit, then, of asking? Why should we all be better at asking? Well, there are documented benefits for individuals, teams, and organizations. So when you think about it at the individual level, is that we all need input from other people. We need mm-hmm. resources to get our jobs done. You know, particularly as you advance in your career and you will be on being an individual contributor, you really need resources from other people to be creative, Uh, to come up with good solutions, to solve problems quickly and efficiently. And we have found that people who freely ask for what they need and they are generous, they help other people, they do both. I call that the the giver-requester. That's the ideal. That's where you want to be. That those people are very well regarded for their generosity, and they get the inflow of uh, information, knowledge, contacts, ideas, opportunities that they need uh, to be productive, efficient, and creative. Mm. All right, so let's talk a little bit more then about what you call the law of giving and receiving. So a number of years ago, Cheryl Baker and I developed an activity called the Reciprocity Ring. Yes. It's a team activity in which people give and get help from one another. And when we created this activity, I always introduce it the same way. And it was with a little, a little lecture about the importance of generosity, of giving, of helping but very early on, I found that that was never the problem. The problem was getting people to ask for what they need. And that turned out to be the key to giving and receiving. So I now think of it as the law of giving and receiving. Of course, we want to give. Giving is a virtue. We should help people in need. But in the workplace, we need to ask if we're going to get the resources that we want, the resources that we need to be productive. Because, you know, people are not mind readers. They don't know what you need until you actually give voice mm-hmm. to your requests. Okay. So, and I, I know from having an opportunity to, um, you know, to read through your book that you have a variety of profiles. So let's, let's take one, the overgenerous giver. Tell us a little bit about the overgenerous giver. There are four main types. Uh, the overly generous giver is the most common type, and that's the person <laughs> who is generous, who gives, who helps, uh, but doesn't ask for what they need. And in the extreme, it becomes dysfunctional generosity. Now, it sounds like heresy to say that you can give too much, you can be too yeah. generous. 
you know, but if you think about it, if you're getting burned out, yeah. your energy is depleted, uh, perhaps you're compromising your resources or your ability to follow through on your commitments, not taking care of yourself, that's dysfunctional generosity. Um, it's very common, though, and as I said before, you balance that by, um, you know, asking for what you need. The opposite of the overly generous giver is what I call the selfish taker. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the person who freely asks and will take it all in but doesn't give anything back. Uh, a friend of mine who used to work at IBM Consulting uh, said once I, I talked to him about this, he said, oh, we call them sponges. So they just <laughs> suck in everything and not a drop comes back. So the third type is what I call the lone wolf or the isolate. Hmm. And in some ways, that's the most tragic because the person is just disconnected from life. They don't give. They don't ask. They just have their heads down, and they think that's the road to success. But it's very limited. Without inputs from others, you just cannot reach your potential. And then the fourth type, which is the ideal for an individual, for a team, or an entire organization, is the giver-requester. The person who is generous, who freely gives, who doesn't keep track of who helps whom. It's not about that tit-for-tat exchange. And they frequently ask for what they need when they need it. Those people, the research shows, are very well regarded for their generosity and the most productive because they're getting the resources that they need when they Mm -hmm. need them uh, to do well. Oh, so good. All right. So so let's say uh, we're in the workplace and we have a, let's say, a team member who is an overgenerous giver. What can we do, if anything, to help that overgenerous giver take a little bit more care? And I'm just, for fun, going to say care of herself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's, I mean, one approach, probably the uh, conventional or traditional approach would be to coach that person, to try to educate or even enlighten that person. And I think that that can, you can get some progress with that, but I think the best way to do it is to focus on the behavior. Mm-hmm. So in one chapter, I write about a dozen different tools that teams use. And so I would say take one of those tools, and which is a group-level activity, and it's always based on the same principles that everyone is required to make a request when they engage in this activity, even though they spend most of their time helping other people. So if you put that overly generous giver in that context where the request is the ticket of admission, in fact, not making a request is letting the group down, they will very, very quickly mm. shift their behavior and they'll start making requests because it's now it's a group requirement. Mm. Oh, I, li- I I like that idea. You've got me you've got me uh, thinking about this. So that's actually very clever because in order for the giver to belong, the giver has to ask for what it is that she needs. Mm-hmm. And it's also good if you have a selfish taker. Um, now they will very freely ask, but in that group setting, in that transparent public setting, uh, they're much more likely to give and to help other people because it would just be too obvious that they're just taking and not helping anyone. So it actually works for both, for the overly generous giver and the selfish taker, and even the lone wolf, because the lone wolf um, has to participate as well to make a request, and then they're swept along with the the energy of the group, and they'll be helping other people as well. Mm. All right, so now um, can you give us some practical steps on how we might become the giver-requester, the ideal? Well, if we focus on the, on the asking part, because that's the challenge for most people, um, there's a couple of different approaches. I talked before about having a, you want to have a thoughtful, intentional request. 
So you don't want to rush into a request. You want to be prepared. So you want to think about, well, what's the goal? What am I trying to achieve? So one method I developed is called the quick start method. Uh, it's a series of five incomplete sentences. And when you complete these sentences, you get a sense of what is it you're trying to accomplish and what resource you might need. And I can give you uh, two quick examples. Oh, good. So uh, here's one. There's two blanks in it, and you would have to fill in those two blanks. So I am currently working on. Okay. And I could benefit from. All right. So if you were to fill in those two blanks, it's, okay, what am I currently working on? Let me think about that. Um, okay, what would I benefit from? What kind of resource? So another one would be uh, I'm currently struggling to, and I need So those two blanks as well. And uh, I'll give you one more which is the fifth one of the series, which is that my greatest hope is, and I could use advice on. Oh, that's so, so I, great. I just did this uh, yesterday, in fact, with a group of, of executives, and I had them fill out all five, and they were very thoughtful about it, and that really gave them the information they needed, you know, to really pause, think about what what is my biggest hope? What am I struggling with? What is the current project? What resource, resources do I need? Then they'd say, okay, now pick one of those, and now you need to formulate that as a SMART request. Now, mm. my SMART request criteria are different than SMART goals. Uh, some similarities, but there's some differences. So the S is specific. So you want to make a very specific request. The more specific, the better. And the reason is that a specific request triggers people's memories of what they know and who they know. Those are the two ways uh, that you could help. A, a very general request does not get a lot of response. Right, like I could uh, use some help. <laughs> yeah, I could, oh, the most general one I ever heard, and this was from an executive from the Netherlands, and he said, my request is for information. And I said, okay. I said, could you elaborate? He says, no, it's confidential. And I said, well, okay, well, you know, he didn't get any help. How could you help with that kind of request? You know, it was like the most general request possible. So the M, uh, the M in SMART goals is for measurable. And right. Measurability is nice, but for me, M is meaningful. Why are you making the, the request? It's the why of the request. And surprisingly, that is often left out. We often assume that other people know that it's important. Otherwise, why would you make, be making the request? But you should never assume that. You should always explain why this is meaningful. Meaningful for accomplishing your task or your job, how it helps your boss meet his or her objectives, how it aligns with the organization's objectives. You know, that would be thoughtful about the meaningful part mm -hmm. of the request. Uh, the A is for action. You're asking for something to be done, like a referral or expert advice or brainstorming. R is for strategically realistic. Mm -hmm. So I encourage a stretch request, but it has to be within the realm of possibility. Um, and then the T is time. There has to be a deadline. And here, a specific deadline is much more motivating than a general one. So sometime in 2020, less likely to get help than if I say, okay, I really need this by the end of Q1. So good. Well, Wayne, let me just remind everyone that you are Wayne Baker, and you are also the uh, you are a professor of business administration 
um, at the University of Michigan's Ross School of Business. You are also the faculty director of the Center for Positive Organizations. I'm Ann Greenhall. I have the pleasure of speaking with you, and we are talking about your book, All You Have to Do is Ask, How to Master the Most Important Skill for Success. And this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Channel 132. All right, Wayne, I have the pleasure of being, I hope, uh, a good student, if not um, one of the best students. So, so far, we've covered a lot of ground, and that is you've talked about the law of giving and receiving and of types of, I'll say, givers, the overly generous giver, complemented by the selfish taker, the lone wolf who just values self-reliance, and then the ideal, the giver, requester, who gives help and also asks for what he or she needs. And then we started to talk a little bit about the strategic ask, the SMART ask, and that stands for specific, meaningful, action-oriented, realistic, and time-bound. And you began to give me some formula, some way in which you can frame a sentence in order to make that smart ask. So I'm going to go back to the very first one that you gave. And if I've got it right, I'm working on blank and need blank. Did I hear that right? Yep, that'll work. Okay. So you said that you just did this with some executives. Can you give an example of how they filled in the blanks? Oh, that's really interesting. Um yeah, so these were executives in the automotive industry. Okay. Uh, a lot of them were uh, senior engineers. And so I'm also thinking about what I actually could say. <laughs> okay, sure. And I can always be a student here if you need me. So you yeah, tell me. So the, um, yeah, there was one that was, uh, had a question about alternative uh, material for seats mm-hmm. in cars. And asked some technical questions about that, but he's currently working on that. And he said, we're looking for some new suppliers of this very particular kind of material that they had. And uh, so that was the need. That was the person was currently working on that. The need was to find some, uh, some alternative or some new suppliers for this particular kind of fabric. And, you know, it was amazing um, the kind of help that person got. You know, somebody knew somebody who was in the textiles business. Someone else knew someone who had a um, who did experimental uh, fabrics uh, using oh, I forget what it was it was some organic material that not leather uh, something that you grow in the ground that uh, could be used for it so there was you know that that was one very concrete example uh, some of them were so technical that I confess that I didn't fully sure. understand yeah. what they yeah. were saying uh, but everyone else did and um, so this is a group of 28 and we counted. Uh, the activity took about 90 minutes. Um, everyone made a request. Uh, they thought about the ways they could help one another meet the requests, and there were 28 requests, and there were 85 contributions, 25, I mean, 85 offers of help in about 90 minutes, and everyone got multiple offers. Very impressive. And just to just to be clear and to think about transferability here, were these um, auto executives you were working with, were they all in the same company or in the same industry? Did they know each other? That's a good question. So in this case, they are all from the same company, but mm-hmm. they were from all over the world. And ah. so some some knew each other beforehand, but a lot of them were strangers. So it was a very, very big company. So there's you know, that you could be working there for decades and not meet but a fraction of people. Now, we've also have done this um, 
So some of these tools we have used around the world. We've done in different languages, different countries, and they seem to always work. And they're, they're built on that principle that it's the request that drives the giving-receiving process and then all the ways that you can actually do this. Uh, but I've done this with uh, groups of complete strangers. Yeah, you read my uh, mind. Yes. Yes, yeah, so, but sometimes, you know, they might make a... If we get to do two rounds, which is my favorite way of doing it, mm. um, you know, mm. then they might make a safer request the first time, just kind of testing the system. But then when they see what happens, they're willing to be a little bit bolder and make a, a bigger request. Um, it's possible. I always like to do the two rounds where the first one cannot be related to your work, your career, your profession. That has to be a personal request mm. related to you, your personal life, your family, your community, mm. your church, whatever it might be. And the second uh, round, that's the work-related request. Uh, and I'll tell you, Anne, it's amazing in that first round, yeah. even with people who are, you know, who are strangers, will start to reveal things, mm. and, um, and then people will just, it just brings out the generosity in other people. You mm. know, when people reveal something about a challenge that they have at home, a health challenge, a challenge they have uh, with their children, mm. and other people can connect because they've been there too. And they've known people who've had those challenges. Mm. So people help one another. And then that first round, that personal round, really sets the stage uh, of trust, I think, for, for the second round. Oh, so good. So can you give an example of maybe one of the most uh, ro- moving first uh, asks that you've heard? Yes, I can tell you one that um, occurred um, with colleagues of mine in France who are using some of our tools at INSEAD, mm. uh, which is, as sure. we all know, is the the business school in France. And there was a, a person being trained there to run the activity for the incoming MBA students. And she made a request on behalf of her little niece who lived in Romania. Now, her niece was about 18 months old, and her parents had recently discovered that she had a condition called cranial synestosis. Mm. Now, you know, we've all touched the top of a baby's head and we feel the soft spots. Yeah. Well, the human skull is made of five major bones, seven in total, and they're joined by these fibrous tissues or sutures, and that's the soft spot that you feel where those things inter- intersect. Every now and then, one or more of those sutures will fuse prematurely, and then the skull cannot expand. Mm. And what this means mm. is that, you know, the person will grow up with a distorted face and a, or, a, you know, a, a distorted head. It can lead to blindness, seizures, or even death. And they just were not able to find the surgeon. It's a rare condition, but it, it just, there are surgeons who know how to fix it. Um, and they couldn't find that surgeon in Romania. But Felicia, was her name of her aunt who lived in France, made a a request in that personal round on behalf of her little niece. Someone else who was participating that day was an adjunct professor, so a part-time professor whose full-time job was being a pediatrician at um, one of the oldest pediatric hospitals in the world, which is in France. Um, He said, I'm certain we've got surgeons who can fix this. Um, I'll make a connection for you. And he did. And one thing led to another. And Christina and her family flew to France. She had the surgery. And um, it was a complete success. In fact, I'm, I'm looking at a picture of Christina. I framed it on, oh. I have it on my <laughs> shelves here as a, as a reminder 
of the power of asking for what you really need. Mm, so good. Really, really wonderful. So the reciprocity circle, I'm, I'm hearing, am I hearing maybe an implicit recommendation that in working with teams in organizations that perhaps starting with something more personal and working to the task at hand would be most effective? Yes, I think that's, I think that's always the case. Although there are many times when I've worked with various clients where they say, well, we're just, that takes two and a half hours. We're not going to invest that kind of time. What can you do in 90 minutes? Mm-hmm. And I'll say, okay, well, we'll do one round. And sometimes they say, okay, it's got to be a business round, and we'll do that, and that will work fine. Uh, sometimes they say, how about, how about giving people a choice? And I give some examples of personal requests and work-related requests to kind of you know, motivate and inspire people, kind of stimulate their thinking. Um, you know, but it'll work with one round that's just work-related as well as the two rounds with personal followed by work. But it is that. That's my preference, the two rounds. Oh, so good. And do you, have you seen, uh, so I can see a workplace application both in um, building teams and affecting a positive culture in the organization. Do you see um, a way in which this is incorporated quite routinely in organizations? Yeah, there's a number of different ways that it, that it's done, a uh, number of these tools for teams. Uh, so some are, are, are pretty straightforward, simple, but very effective. Uh, one is the, the daily stand-up. So the daily stand-up is very common in IT and software development, uh, but I think has enormous potential for use in any group. So at our Center for Positive Organizations, our staff does a stand-up uh, every morning at 10 a.m., and people get in a circle, and very quickly, each person's required to uh, say three things. Here's what I worked on yesterday, here's what I'm working on today, and here's the help that I need. <laughs> and then you go to the next person and the next person. Uh, I've seen this with a local firm with 50 mm-hmm. people, and they do it with, in less than 15 minutes. Um, and the help is given afterwards, after that is done. But that's a routine where you're expected, as the third point, to ask for something that you need. And that makes it um, normal. It makes it you know, routine. It makes it an expected behavior. Um, another variation would be the uh, the huddle, and mm-hmm. there are both informal and formal huddles. The informal one is ad hoc, is that, you know, when you're stuck on a problem, you stop, pull together a couple people, have a 50-minute brainstorm, um, and then go back to what you're doing. Um, you know, the IDEO, the yes. uh, industrial design firm, is uh, they do this in, in a really big way. Uh, in fact, they'll say that the reason they have a culture of helping is because they have a culture of asking mm. um, and have a lot of routines for doing that. And a, a third one I could describe, uh, which is also a favorite, is the one problem a week whiteboard. Um, and this I learned from engineers at a large uh, pharmaceutical company where every Friday they would get together in one engineering discipline and they would decide on a problem that they were working on, they'd write it out on a whiteboard, and then that whiteboard would be up for the next week, and people could then uh, offer a solution, challenge a solution, ask a question, ask for clarification, and then at the end of the week, they would go over what was done, and then they would pose the next problem that they would work on. Um, and just recently, I've seen a financial services firm that does the same thing. Uh, what they do is they have a big glass wall, and you post your request you know, the kind of help that you need, you post that up on this glass wall, and as people walk by, uh, they'll sign their name to it if they could help. So there's a lot of ways of doing it, a lot of variations on the same theme, but I particularly like that one because it's asynchronous. 
you know, that it's yeah. like the whiteboard or the glass wall is an implicit request for input from other people. And it makes it normal. You know, you're expected to put uh, your request for help up there. I'd just like to expand the conversation a little bit and ask you to say what impact these kinds of tools and practices can have on the culture of the organization. And I ask you this question because um, executives, people in leadership roles and positions are very concerned about, of course, corporate strategy, but also culture. So tell us a little bit about the impact of these practices on teams and culture. Well, I've yet to meet a leader who doesn't want a workplace culture of generosity, of cooperation. Uh, And that means that um, it's a workplace where people feel psychologically safe Hmm. and enabled to ask for what they need and to give and get help from one another. And so I think it's the leadership's uh, responsibility, if they want that kind of culture, uh, to do a number of things to help that culture um, be created and, and sustained. I think one of the most important is that the leader has to be a role model of the behavior mm-hmm. that they want. So I've seen many cases that are unfortunate where you know, a leader wants other people to <laughs> give, get help from one another, but they mm-hmm. want to you know, step back and be the font of wisdom and knowledge, and you can come to me for answers, but I'm not going to make a request. And what that happens, that really puts a damper on, on the mm-hmm. whole effort. So if you want that positive workplace culture, you have to be willing to be vulnerable, to take a risk, and to admit that you don't know everything and that you need help from other people as well. So that would be a big part of it. Mm. I appreciate that you um, brought up the importance of the leader um, herself, himself. And I guess I'm just wondering about the psychological impact of having one of your um, profiles in the role of leader, CEO, let's say. So if you have, for example, an overgenerous giver in the chief executive officer role, what impact does that have? How does that trickle down, so to speak, into the organization? Well, it's interesting that you asked. Um, in the program I did yesterday, we had this group of executives, and I, I mentioned them before, I had them take the giving asking assessment that I mentioned that's in the book, mm-hmm. and, and we have the online version of it. And uh, during the break, uh, my assistant helped me, and we, we graphed the results. Uh, and every single one of them was in the generous giver category, every okay. one. And so this is very common. And, and so one thing I find is that, you know, if you can get data from people and then play the results back to them, they could see, so they could see right there. So it wasn't just me saying that many people are overly generous givers. They could see the results themselves. Mm -hmm. And that started to open their eyes and to motivate them. That would say, well, what can we actually do? And then from there, you could say, okay, well, what we can do is that we can engage in some of these activities. So the, every one of these tools is based on what I call the behavior first principle. Okay. Uh, you know, it's, it's hard to change people's attitudes and beliefs. I mean, you can. Uh, and, you know, the intent when people have change efforts to do that is to get people to behave differently by changing their attitudes and beliefs. But I think you need to start the other way around, which is to change people's behaviors, and they will update their beliefs. So getting people <laughs> like to engage, yeah, getting people to engage in the behavior mm-hmm. So from the leader's perspective, you should be a role model of the behavior that you want. 
So I would have the whole top team uh, engage in one of these activities. Uh, you know, it could be something like the stand-up or a huddle, the reciprocity ring. Mm-hmm. Uh, they could do it with technology if they wanted to. But I would have them, you know, kind of realize where they are to realize the documented benefits for the organization if they build this workplace mm-hmm. culture of, uh, of generosity and their role in leading the effort. Um, and, the, you know, the, the tools work, you know, well at that level or just at any level in the organization. But then they get to experience the behavior to feel the results and then that will start to that will start to convince them much more so than any lecture that I could possibly give them. Mm. Okay, so let me make sure that I heard you right on that. You're saying that the whoever is at the top needs to model this behavior, and that might be by bringing in some of the techniques that you've talked about, like the stand up, the reciprocity ring, the huddle, or the whiteboard. Um, at the very top in the C-suite, and that that act will then be emulated among those in the teams below. Yes, and they would have to be very active in getting the other other groups to emulate it. Okay. So you have to train people how to do it. You know, So you want it to cascade down, but they would model the behavior, um, and then they would have the tools to be used at the next level and the next level after that so that there would be this cascading effect. All right, now, I, I, I know you know, because you work at a place like I work at that's very data-driven. Do you have some um, research that supports the relationship between a positive organizational culture and results? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's uh, a number of studies that um, we have done at the Center for Positive Organizations um, that document that. Uh, they show that when a when a, a company builds a positive workplace culture, and we we measure that with uh, with various surveys, and when there's an improvement in these positive practices, we see uh, lower turnover, mm. you know, higher intentions to stay uh, at the uh, business level or business units. We've seen increases in uh, profitability and productivity, uh, even increases in innovation as well. So we now have a number of studies that show the effect on multiple outcomes of building a, a positive workplace. Um, and then we also have uh, results from the group activities themselves. So, f- for example, the reciprocity ring, um, you know, we have over time uh, collected data on the benefits. So somebody gets a resource they need, they get a problem solved. So we've gone and said, okay, well, let's try to quantify those results. And it's astounding that even in a group as small as 20 or 24, uh, the average dollar value, that is, could be cost savings, uh, it could be revenue generation, um, is between 150 and $500,000. And that's in an activity that takes about 90 minutes to do. Um, we've had a couple of examples where the request granted was so huge uh, <laughs> and the benefit so great um, that no one ever believes those numbers, so I don't ever, <laughs> I don't ever report, them <laughs> okay. any, report them anymore. But you know, and it's interesting, sometimes people said, well, you know, I can't quantify the dollar value, but I can tell you this saved me a lot of time. Okay. And, and the average amount of time saved for a group of 24 is um, 1,600 hours of time. And again, this is an activity that takes, you know, 90 minutes to do. So, and you could calculate the time, you know, the value of that time, hmm. Um, and show that the uh, the return on investment is really quite high. 
Oh, very good. So, uh, Wayne, and I, I don't want to get too academic here for our listeners, but I'm just wondering, how do you, when you talk about a positive organization, can you just say a word about what you mean by that? Yeah, so there's a couple different um, dimensions to it. Um, one would be positive purpose and positive meaning, um, so that people would have a clear sense of what is the you know, what is the real impact of what we do as, as a company? And not just financial or, or just with shareholders, but our positive impact on society. What is our, you know, what, what Adam Grant might call the, the pro-social impact, right, right. Pro-social, pro-social, pro-social benefit of what we do. So that would be one, being clear on that, that higher purpose that the, that the company serves. Another would be uh, positive values and beliefs. That's part of culture as well. And then a third part would be the positive practices um, that are used in order to create those results. And I, am I right in thinking that they're all intertwined? And in fact, if we start with behaviors, simply using positive practices fueled by positive values and, and beliefs, <laughs> does one, li- I guess I should ask, does one link to the other? Is there a place to begin? Absolutely. They're, they're all interconnected. Um, and um, I think it's, part, it's, it's all part of a system. But let's say you have a place that is not a positive workplace culture, um, where the values are not what you want and people aren't clear on the purpose. You can start to change that by using that behavior first principle. Yeah. You'll say, okay, you know, here's, here's a couple of tools, and we are going to start using these tools, and we're going to experiment with them for at least 45 days. Like it or not, that's what we're going to do. And if you enforce that behavior and people will do it over time, their experience becomes the evidence that they need to update their beliefs. Mm. (laughs) So I've seen in some workplaces that are psychologically unsafe. Well, just start using the tools and people will, you know, they'll do it in a way where they won't make risks or take, take big risks. But over time, as they see things starting to happen, the workplace will become a little bit more psychologically safe which means the tools will work a little bit better. And when the tools work a little bit better, then the workplace becomes a little bit safer again. So again, it's focusing on the behaviors, mm-hmm. and then that'll change, start to change the beliefs and the values, all mm-hmm. part of that system. Very good. Now, uh, listeners might know that I have a dear friend named Marcy who's a clinical psychologist, and she often talks about stopping the behavior and discussing why later. So (laughs) I I really like your approach. We're going to change behavior and our attitudes will become uh, more up-to-date, updated. Now, you've used a term... psychologically safe a couple of times. And Mike Yuseem, who sends his regards, Mike Yuseem, Jeff Klein, and I have had the pleasure of speaking with Amy Edmondson on the show about psychological safety. But this is a term that's gotten into the into the common language. But could you say a little bit more about what you mean by it? Because I sometimes think it's misunderstood. Mm-hmm. Yes, and uh, give my regards to Mike Yuseem as well. <laughs> I've known him for a very long time. We're fellow sociologists. Um, and, you know, I've learned a lot from Amy Edmondson on psychological safety. Um, so, as she would say, I will kind of channel, uh, channel Amy, uh, Amy, is that it's, uh, you know, a couple things. In a place that's psychologically safe, uh, members of a team feel that it's, it's safe for interpersonal risk-taking. So that means um, they feel free to speak up if they see a problem, uh, to admit a mistake without fear of retribution, um, to question someone in authority, and the part that I would add to it is that they feel safe and empowered 
to ask for what they need. Mm. Okay. How do we get there, Wayne? Because I, I, I so appreciate that ideal, uh, and I'm sure listeners can join me in uh, the common experience of being in a group in which, you know, I or we haven't felt safe, safe enough to speak up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get, I'd come back to that behavior first principle, and it would be to choose one of these group level tools that are based on the ideas that everyone needs to uh, make a request for something. And I would have people focus at the personal level, uh, actually probably for a while before I'd ever get to any of the business problems. You know, where people, and if people know that they're required Mm -hmm. to make a request related to something in their personal life, their family, their community, whatever it might be, and they know that everyone else is going to do it, then you're in the same psychological boat. And that makes it safer, just on the face of it, it's safer if you know that everyone is going to make a request. Um, And people get to respond to those requests. Mm -hmm. And when, you know, if you express the personal need and someone else that, Maybe, you know, you had an uneasy relationship with, but they offered genuine help. Mm-hmm. You know, that's going to start to improve that relationship bit yeah, by bit. Absolutely. And let me just remind listeners that you're listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm Ann Greenhall, and I'm speaking with Dr. Wayne Baker, author of a new book, All You Have to Do is Ask How to Master the Most Important Skill for Success. Wayne, we're coming around the corner here, but let me not be remiss. You also talk in your book about uh, asking across boundaries. Could you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, that's one of the most powerful uses of the tools. So I write about what you can do as an individual, what you can do as a team, and what you can do as an organization. So every large organization um, is divided into silos. That seems to be human nature. That's just the way it is. You know, different locations, different units, and they start to be their own separate little communities sometimes. So what a leader can do is to to uh, install certain practices that will create asking and giving across organizational boundaries. And I can give you uh, two examples. One is low-tech, one is high-tech. Uh, the low-tech one is one that um, I learned from a a colleague of mine who was a director in a large automotive company, and he was in charge of two different divisions. Uh, racing and advanced engineering. Hmm. So racing, they're like from week to week, just let's fix the car for the next race and then we go race. And advanced engineering says, okay, we're thinking of the technologies that may not see the light of day for five or ten years. So very, very different time horizons, but he felt that the people in both of these groups could really learn from one another. And so he created uh, cross-collaboration workshops Hmm. where we'd have people from both groups come and then they would they could set their own agenda, but they would take you know a period of time uh, in which they would each group would educate the other group, and then also an opportunity for people to express what their problems were, what their challenges, and then people would naturally offer help. Um, so these cross collaboration workshops, these was one of the tools that I talk about in the book, very effective for building connections across silos. So that's the, that's the the high touch low tech uh, option. The other is to use technology. And there's a lot of ways that you can do that. Uh, I'll give you two quick examples. Uh, one is that uh, a colleague of mine, Jim Malazzi, who used to be the CEO of Prudential Real Estate, uh, he took over the company when it was losing $70 million, and uh, you know it was, it was a really bad shape. Uh, and he applied a lot of these tools and others 
that in about two years he turned it around and turned it into a positive culture. Mm. And there was one practice he did uh, in, um, in one of their annual sales meetings, so thousands of people from all over, is that he stands up on stage. Um, <laughs> he said, okay, I want everyone to pull their cell phone out. And then there's this collective groan throughout the whole audience because <laughs> they think they're going to be instructed to turn their phone off. He said, I want you to turn your phone on and I'm going to put, I want you to text or email. And he put, you know, the addresses up on the screen. Uh, he said, three ideas about the best way to get a customer or keep a customer. Oh, great. <laughs> Go. Right. And so now these are people from all over the world. So you're across all these different mm -hmm. silos, all these locations. And like in 24 hours, they generated thousands of quality ideas. So that's one. And then the last one I'll mention is um, Givitas, which is a digital platform that I've helped to create based on the principles in the book. So if you think about some of those group activities, those face-to-face -face activities, well, put that into a digital platform, which is now 24-7, um, and it's asynchronous, and you can have much, much, much larger mm -hmm. groups in it that having people engage in that naturally starts to uh, connect across silos as people give and get help. <laughs> That's great. And it's called Givitas. Did I hear that right? Yes. Yeah, Givitas. It's a blend of, uh, um, you know, uh, Civitas, yes. which or community and giving. <laughs> Very good. All right. So um, maybe just uh, another organizational question. What can managers or leaders do to reinforce asking by rewarding those who ask? That's an important part of it, too. Uh, you know, people are more likely to do what is recognized and rewarded. And so if you really want to build a workplace culture of generosity where people are freely giving and getting help from one another, which means they're really optimizing the use of the resources that exist in the organization, um, you have to be willing to recognize it and even to reward it. So sometimes the recognition can be informal, mm -hmm. where the leader can say, you know, I want to... You know, I want, to, uh, I want to acknowledge Mary because she made this request, and I'll tell you why that was so important and how it helped us do X, Y, and Z. So to really recognize publicly when people make requests. So a lot of the systems we have will recognize helping. we got to think about, well, okay, well, how can we also recognize the asking part? So some companies use uh, different uh, technologies for giving kudos to one another, and it's usually for giving help. So I'd say, okay, well, you don't have to change the, the technology but just also think about using that as a way of recognize people who ask for help. So you reward that as well. And then, in, and then I think it's actually possible uh, to factor this into people's uh, performance evaluations, mm -hmm. and which would mean related to their compensation. You know, if you, re if you really, really want to get serious about building a culture where people have these kinds of interactions with one another, you've got to be willing to recognize them and to reward them. Very good. So I'll... Wayne, maybe just a couple of more uh, questions here. Can you think of an organization, illustration of an organization you've worked with that's uh, really made a dramatic turnaround in this way, turn into a culture of giving? So there's a couple I can point to, but I'd have to go back to the example that I gave with Jim Malazzi and uh, Prudential Real Estate, mm -hmm. because that really was a company that was in dire straits. They were losing $70 million a year. Um, Customers didn't like them anymore. They were they were losing talent, and by applying a lot of these you know positive practices, um, and uh, really really used it to turn the whole company around. So that within a couple of years they were making twenty million dollars, 
a year. They were winning J.D. Power Service Awards and, um, and attracting the best talent. Um, so it is possible to turn this around, but it's, you know, it's, applying, it's applying the whole range of, 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 of the tools that you have from mm-hmm. getting individuals to start working differently um, teams and, organi- and at the organizational level as well. Very good. And modeling it, of course, at the top. That's right. That's, a, that's absolutely critical. All right. So in the last minute or so, uh, Wayne, I'm just curious, uh, what drew you to this topic? Well, I'm trained as a, as a sociologist, and I was taught how to analyze networks. Um, and that's what, I've, that's what I've done for a long period of time. And I would, I would teach my MBA students and executives how to better analyze and understand their networks, the strengths and the weaknesses. But I really didn't have a lot to tell them about what to do with them. How, okay. how, do, you, how do you use those networks in a mm-hmm. productive and positive way? How do you invest in those networks? And that's why I started to come up with this idea of thinking about, okay, well, what would be some of the practices or the tools mm-hmm. based on this, this principle that we call generalized reciprocity? So, you know, you help me and I help you. Mm-hmm. That's direct reciprocity. That's a good thing. We'd want that to happen. But generalized mm-hmm. reciprocity is like a pay it forward system. So you help me. I'm grateful. I pay it forward to the third person who helps a fourth. And then it kind of all comes back around to us again. So I was thinking about all the ways that you could start to create that um, as a way of, of helping people to use and build their networks effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that led to, as I started to use some of these tools, the realization that getting people to help was not the problem. It was getting people to ask for what they need. That was the driver or the catalyst of the whole giving-receiving process. Yeah, and sometimes it is hard to know what you need. Yes. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's funny. That's another barrier uh, is that many times I've had people, you know, were about to engage in one of these activities, and they take me aside and, you go, and they say, you know, I've always wanted to be in a room of really smart well-educated, well-connected people, and to be able to ask for anything, and I don't know what to ask. Mm-hmm. You know? And that was one of the reasons why I developed the quick start method. That really is a good way of getting people to think about what is it that I need, what is it that I want, and why. Uh, and there are other methods as well. There's a goal articulation. Uh, that's an exercise that takes longer to do. And the one that takes the longest but can be the most effective is um, positive visioning, which is to develop a detailed narrative of the future that you want for yourself, mm. say five years from now, in detail. And once you do that, you realize all the stuff that you need in order to actually achieve it. In fact, sharing that vision uh, with other people is an implicit request. And if you do that, people will start offering help without you actually asking for it because they, you know, they see what you're trying to accomplish and they want to help you. Yeah, I, that's a, I think that's a wonderful recommendation, and maybe even one, uh, of course, maybe this is autobiographical on my part, but I have some uh, children in their 20s who are finding their way and articulating where it is you think you want to land and then working backwards and just talking to people about your hope and dream. People are very eager and willing to help, and so I've been trying to encourage them to do just what you've done. So, Wayne, in a word, where can people find out more about your book? I could go to the website for the book, uh, which is allyouhavetodoisask.com. So that's the title of the book, .com. Uh, It's available at um, all the online booksellers as well. All right. Well, Wayne, I just really want to thank you so much for joining me today on Leadership in Action. It was really a pleasure to talk to you about your new book, All You Have to Do is Ask.
Well, thank you, Anne. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 